I did murders and acquisitions and stock offerings. Wait, did you say you did murders and acquisitions? <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> Hey, it's me, Michael Bean, and you're on with Geezers of the Game. Stay frosty. Well, thank you so much, G.S. Jensen, for joining the show. We're uh, happy to have you on and uh, look forward to talking with you. Tell me, what, what do you got going on so far currently? I know you just put out a book not that long ago. Uh, that's right, and thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I did. I In January, I published Duality, which was the final book in my six book series, Riven Worlds. And that closed out a, um, a huge arc, uh, obviously six book arc involving a tremendous alien threat and a lot of other things going on and everything. Had a tremendous reveal in it at the end of the book that I had been building up to for many, many books. Um, so this was, this was a big one for me. Um, and it's been tremendously well-received. I couldn't be happier with the response. Uh, there's always a risk whenever you're weaving secrets in and then you have the big reveal and you know you worry are people going to go where did that come from that's out of left field or else if you made it too obvious they're like oh yeah i saw that coming a mile away but it seems like i hit the sweet spot and everybody seems really happy with it and kind of blown away so that's good and now though i have pivoted to doing something i actually haven't done before um i am writing a standalone novel it's in the Amaranth universe, and the main character is one of the major characters from the series, but it is basically her own adventure. Well, she goes off. Ooh, which character? Okay, it is uh, Marley Murano. Okay. We first met Marley in Starshine, which is the very first book in Amaranth. Uh, she was five years old. She is the niece of one of the two main characters, uh, Caleb. And she's your typical precocious, wild little five-year-old girl. And she's cute and it's wonderful and everything. Um, but over the 19 books cover, I guess, 16 years. And so then at, at the end of the most recent book, she's 21 years old and is went through a lot of growth over the six book Riven World series um, and has elevated in her job. And she's now a deputy um, ambassador with a focus on first contact scenarios. So in this book, she goes off on a first contact scenario and finds herself cut off from Concord, from home base, from her family and friends and boss and all of her support structure. And of course, in lots of trouble. And so it's a little different for me in, in that there will be only a couple of point of view characters um, and the focus is on an entirely new alien world, an alien species that we have never met before. And like I said, she's pretty much on her own on a world she knows very little about and gets embroiled in their fairly significant problems. Nice. Yeah. So I am nearly done with the first draft of that. Um, it's ended up being a little longer than I had planned. I thought, you know, okay, I'm writing a more focused book, just a couple of point of view characters, um, not, you know, all of these subplots springing off everywhere as my books tend to be. Um, you know, this will be maybe 70K words. Um, it'll be tight and focused and we'll get through that. And I have already blown past 80 and I'm not finished with the first draft and never mind all of the editing and adding in things. So, right. <laughs> you know, so it is a new adventure for me too. So we're looking at a good 120 
<laughs> oh goodness. I, I really had better keep it under hundred K my goodness. I mean, Marley is a vivacious, talkative girl, you know, that takes the world by the horns and she has lots to say, no question, but we're really going to need to keep it under hundred K. <laughs> well, that's really awesome. I'm very looking forward to this one for sure. I know uh, I started reading with the, uh, the Asterian Noir. Mm-hmm trilogy and i really enjoyed that trilogy a lot as a standalone and then i found out it wasn't even close to a standalone <laughs> <laughs> well it, it was it was absolutely intended for people like you to come in clean you know with no idea about the aurora novels or anything and to tell a complete story on its own in the trilogy um and then hopefully you enjoyed it enough, then you find out there's a whole other world going on. And only then can you go back to the beginning and discover all of that. So um, you are evidence that my plan has worked perfectly. <laughs> it definitely worked. I, I, I'm hooked. I've had to put things on hold, as you know, writing took everything. Actually, editing took everything. <laughs> Writing's easy. <laughs> editing is a whole nother deal. <laughs> How long does your editing process typically take you now? I mean, I assume Starshine took longer than any of the others. Yes, it did. Um, In part because I planned the entire Aurora Rising trilogy before I started writing Starshine. Um, I am a huge planner, um, especially early on. Um, You know, I have to know the end before I start. And in this case, to me, the end was the end of the third book, not the end of Starshine. So there was a lot of planning and... I was just crazy. I mean, I, we have over a hundred colonized worlds in Aurora Rising, and I named every one of them and placed every one of them on a map. Uh, I worked that out the entire. Shock me. <laughs> when, when I think about you, especially a Mass Effect fan, I, I can see how you would name every world. <laughs> and the galaxy map is so hugely important in Mass Effect. I had to have my own galaxy map. Um, so there was a lot of preparation before I started writing. And then, yes, there was even tremendous more editing. So Starshine basically took me about a year. Wow. Um, but after that, my books have been between five and eight months from start to finish, from, from beginning it, from outlining to publication. Um, and I would say, you know, the first draft writing is probably two to three months of that. Um, and then editing is up to about six weeks before publication. And then you've got beta readers and I do all of my own formatting. So then there's oh, the do you? formatting. I do. Yes. That's where the uh, software engineering comes into play. I, um, <laughs> I, yes, I, you I, know, I can questions. do HTML and, and that type of thing. So yeah, I do all my own formatting also. So when did you start writing full time? So I actually... And, and you may or may not know this, but I started writing Mass Effect fan fiction. Um, yes, I knew that. Okay, yeah. All right, let's see. Um, ME3 came out in 2012, so it was probably 2010. Um, at that point, I was working as a software developer. I had just finished my degree. and But I was utterly consumed as soon as I started with writing the fan fiction. Um, every spare minute, that's what I was doing. And so I wrote fan fiction for all three games. And then decided, you know, I was like, you know what, this is actually pretty serious. I wonder if maybe I could do this. So I, I wrote my own post ME3 story. Um, of course, I had the characters still in the overall world, but they venture mm-hmm. to a new galaxy and meet new aliens and get inv- involved in an, an entire storyline there. And it was 
it was very deliberately my own test to see, can I do this? Can I tell an original story that, you know, will be compelling and that people can read? And it alone was probably 80,000 words. Um, so my fan fiction ended up being almost 500,000 words before that was told. And it got a great response and I was really happy with it. And then, and so this is probably early 2013. It's like, okay, now it's time to see if I can do this for real. No, uh, take the training wheels off, no support structures, um, original character, original story, original world, everything, go. I, that, you know, I've heard of other people doing the, starting with the fanfic, but that's a lot of fanfic that you wrote. I, well, and because when I started, it wasn't very good. I mean, I will totally admit well, that. Um, it was good I, when they started. I've written, you know, throughout my life, I wrote in high school as a teenager and I wrote in college and some advanced English classes and that type of thing. Um, becoming a lawyer sucked all that away, but that's another story that I think we'll probably get into. Um, mm -hmm. But then it had probably been 10 plus years since I had written anything at all whenever I started. And so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. It took those 400,000 words for me to get good at writing. Um, and I'm of the personal opinion that fan fiction is a great way to do that. It is writing the training wheels. Um, you've given the characters and the setting and often the story and right. all you have to figure out is how to put one word in front of the other in an engaging way. Um, and so right. I am completely grateful for having that, um, having that start and having those training wheels. That's, uh, I think you and uh, obviously EJ are the only two people I know of that write, have, have written fanfic for, uh, for that genre specifically mm -hmm. outside of, you know, you typically, you have, you know, your Star Trek or your Star Wars or your Babylon five people, those kinds of, those mm -hmm. kinds of uh, uh, um, series that, that they take from, but from a video game standpoint, that's uh, gives you a whole nother aspect because there's so much, more um technical information in the video games that you don't get in normal uh fanfic in writing so, about a movie or, or that type of thing That's exactly true. i mean you know there's like the whole rpg lit or lit rpg rather. yes yeah well that didn't really exist whenever i started i mean i'm sure it existed but it's been become very popular in the last couple of years um oh. very very popular in fact um <clears throat> but no, I, I didn't. Of course, but you're right. Video games actually offer a lot more depth. Uh, the Mass Effect Codex is probably the size of an encyclopedia. And it's <laughs> right. just background information, history on the alien species and all their quirks and interrelations and all of that. Um, and so I had to become an expert on the every alien species and all of the side characters and their personal history and all of that um, so that I could weave it into a somewhat original story um, rather than because I mean it's no good if what you're writing is just retelling what happens in the game right. everybody already loves the game and they you know already know exactly what happens and so you're not you're not bringing anything new to the table if you do that so um, you've got to go deeper well you also have with a video game you have either a male or a female lead you don't have mm -hmm. to be stuck with one type of thing so I assume you uh, you chose one or the other. 
Yes, yes. Fem Shep is, is my heart. Absolutely. Jennifer Hale does such an incredible voice acting job with it. Mark Muir does a great job as male chef as well. But um, yes, Fem Shep is wonderful. And that's honestly, that's one of the reasons why this all happened. Um, Bioware and Jennifer Hale and the entire storytelling crew there created such an incredible world and such incredible characters that come to life that mm. they made me want to write about them for the first time in my life i was like what a video game is giving me is not enough i want more and so i'm gonna have to create it myself so how how far back does your video game love go <laughs> um not as far back as my husband's he was a gamer in the early 80s when he was a wee little lad his dad worked at ibm and so he brought home a pc junior for christmas one year oh, wow. and he started with the text games and then was a huge sierra fan is still mm -hmm. a huge sierra fan um not zork <laughs> well of course in fact i think there's a poster of that downstairs in his um in his office um but um so he was always needling me about that um the first game that he actually got me to play was gabriel knight three blood of the damned okay. it's it's an adventure yeah. game it was the last adventure game in a trilogy gabriel knight one and two won many awards game of the year and all that type of stuff um and that was great that was wonderful and so after that, I picked at a couple of other single player games. Um, I think Star Wars Jedi Academy was one um, <clears throat> and that type of thing. And then we together started playing an MMO called Dark Age of Camelot in 2001. And that was what sealed the deal. But yeah, so um, so we've played MMOs ever since. And of course, I've also played single player games alongside anything Bioware, Mass Effect, Dragon Age, uh, Jade Empire before that um and that type of thing a huge bethesda fan elder scrolls skyrim um and so on um anything with story elements i is certainly my favorite you know i'm not much of a first person shooter player that uh, you know i just don't have the deck um, <laughs> <laughs> but strategy games you know civilization and all that type oh, yeah. of thing i've done as well awesome very cool okay so you alluded to the the lawyer bit in your history i i am very intrigued how you went from lawyer to software engineer to well the writer we understand now but <laughs> it was the lawyer first i'm assuming yes yes so gonna cast our mind back a little bit earlier than that <clears throat> when i went to college i was going to be an astrophysicist I was going to be wow. Ellie Arroway from Contact, and I was going to find the aliens out there, and then I was going to discover how to travel faster than light so we could go meet them. Oh, to be so young and naive, right? <laughs> be nice, wouldn't it? But um, if you know anything about hard science degrees, then you know that before you get to the cool stuff, there's math. Yes. There's a lot of math. And then there's some more math, and then yet more math. Now I did okay in the math classes. I mean, they were difficult and it wasn't fun, but I was doing okay. But back then a liberal arts education meant a liberal arts education, which meant that I also had to take such classes as philosophy and political science and international relations. And those classes tended to be 20 or so students, we'd sit around in a circle, the professor would ask thought provoking questions, and we would debate these big meaningful issues. And it was fantastic compared to math. 
And long story short, I was seduced by the dark side. I ended up getting a degree in international relations with a minor in economics. And I went to law school where for three more years, we sat around and the professors asked deep thought provoking questions. And we had these huge debates and philosophical discussions. And it was wonderful. And then I went to work for a law firm and the halcyon days came to an abrupt end. Um, I was a corporate attorney. I did mergers and acquisitions and stock offerings. Wait, did you say you did murders? And I <laughs> no, mur well, <laughs> I wanted to often, but mergers, mergers, mergers and acquisitions. Yes. So I never saw the inside of a courtroom or anything like that. Um, the first half of my career was during the dot-com boom, the end of the 90s, where venture capital firms were throwing millions of dollars at any company that had managed to reserve a cool sounding dot-com name. No product, just yeah, an idea yeah. and a website. And they were throwing millions of dollars at them and then taking them public on the NASDAQ. And we were helping. That's what we did. And then the dot-com bust happened. That was a heady weekend when the stock market crashed. Right. Um, and overnight, I became a regulatory attorney. Um, Congress had lots of hearings and then passed this mammoth bill called, called Sarbanes-Oxley that imposed massive new reporting requirements and accounting requirements and everything on all public companies. And so then my job became complying with these new regulations and explaining to our clients why they had to do all this more work and, and you know, this paperwork and, and it was the funding games was gone, you know, um, and so the that's not what games. I the, yeah. <laughs> Well, it was fun in 2000 <laughs> before reality <laughs> returned, let me tell you. Um, and so, you know, I had not signed up for that. Obviously, I, I had not, you know, done any of this to become a regulatory attorney, but um, becoming an expert in that briefly, I, I guess it kept my, it, it meant I kept my job. Um, so that was helpful. But Very, um, I imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but law and I think many, many lawyers, there, there are so many recovering lawyers out there in the world. And many of them actually became writers. You'd be surprised how many I've run across. Um, it is a soul sucking job. It, uh, I, um, I love that term, recovering lawyer. Recovering lawyer. Yes. And, <laughs> and much like the alcoholics, apologies, you know, don't mean to offend, but I will always be a recovering lawyer. You know, you, you never get over that. Um, <laughs> but once I started practicing, I not only quit writing, I quit reading for fun. Um, I mean, I was the ultimate bookworm from the time I was four years old. I always had a book everywhere family vacations i'm like yeah whatever sites are nice i'm reading a book um my entire life start practicing law quit reading altogether it is a soul-sucking profession and so i was coming up for partner and i looked around and i looked at the partners that i was working with and i realized they were working as long as hours as i was um they were making more money but they weren't you know living a better more relaxing life and my thought was what is this what I want the next 20 years to be mm. for me? Um, and, and the answer was unequivocally no. And so I took a leap of faith and bailed on that. That's a big leap of faith. It, it, it was a big leap of faith. Um, it was helped a little bit by the fact that, so my husband was in law enforcement and he went back to school for an electrical engineering degree. And he was that is also a big jump. Also a big job, but he was graduating with an electrical engineering degree. And so it was a great opportunity for us to up in our life. 
And so we moved from Atlanta to Colorado Springs and got jobs there. Um, I got a job as a legal editor um, while I went back to school for software engineering and he got a job as an electrical engineer. You could have worked for Joe Kenda. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Anyways, we can all tell who anybody that's read your work the astrophysicist side, we can see pretty strongly. But how does the attorney side and the software development side really uh, influence your writing? Well, the legal side, it helps a lot in the editing. Um, The perfectionist streak where literally every word matters in a contract um, and every word is chosen for a reason and that type of thing. So I think that just instinctively helps a lot in my writing, but especially in the editing. Um, as well as just, you know, life experience. I got to meet so many people and lots of different roles during those seven years. Um, and I think I absorbed all of that, but it was actually the software development that kind of started re-triggering whatever creative inclinations I had. It's, it's, it's not obvious, you know, to, until you think about it for a minute, but writing a computer program and writing a book have a lot in common with one another. Mm-hmm. You're creating something out of nothing. Um, and the first time I wrote my own computer program, that was just an incredible experience. You know, I, if you make everything work right, if you make the sentences, in this case, the command lines uh, of code work correctly, then what they create is something entirely new, you know, out of these lines of code. And that was just amazing to me. That's really neat. Um, I want to do more of that. And so the the process of, you know, putting together code and functions and and the way they interrelate to one another and call back to one another to work properly is really not that different from constructing a book in a lot of ways. You can be a lot more creative in a book. Obviously, there's a bit more leeway. Uh, Programming is is very rigid. You know, if you put no, a semicolon in the wrong mean. place, then yeah, then the whole thing breaks. So there is a there's right. there's a little bit of more leeway in books, but um, for me, well, at classes least, could be like like characters. Yes, I can totally see it. Yeah, yeah. I've done a little programming in my life. I, mm-hmm. I've been in IT since ninety seven, ninety six, ninety seven, somewhere in there. Nice. Yeah. There have been a lot of changes in that field in that time. I imagine just a little. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, I was at a uh, at a, uh, a gas station, and I went in to get a coffee, and they had a modem, a U.S. robotics modem, and I haven't seen one in so many years that it was shocking. I mean, it wasn't like a fifty-six K or even you know a ninety-six hundred baud or anything, but but it was still shocking to see a modem uh-huh. anywhere. And I'm like, does this actually do something? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, really? Wow. You really need to upgrade, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still neat. I took a picture of it, you know. That's, oh, sure. Absolutely. That's history not, there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> not very many people know what I'm talking about, obviously, and that's probably for the best. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I I totally see what you mean about the programming, especially because if your code does not follow a certain logical progression then it will break down or you'll have air correction issues all the way through it it's the same thing with a plot yes 
That's very. Yes, that is, a that's very a very good analogy. Yes. Yeah, that, that's or not metaphor. Yeah, now analogy. Metaphor or analogy. I love that. Just, I don't know. Is it a metaphor or analogy? You know, those always trip me up, and I always have to go back and check. So, <laughs> if you want to look it up later and dub back in the right answer, then that would be fine. <laughs> you know, um, my narrator to do that. Um, I think she will. You know, a single chapter. I think there will be four or five takes of different sections, and I can't tell. Um, occasionally she'll have an, a mistake. And so I'll tell her, you know, here's a line that's a mistake and she'll fix it and record it and uh, upload a new version. And you cannot tell it is flawless. She's uh, for those who don't listen to your audiobooks, is Piper down, but uh, by far my second favorite voice in audiobooks to this day, my first is Michael Pritchard, but most people don't know him. <laughs> He what, what, does he, um, <clears throat> what does he narrate? Uh, the Spencer books. Uh, oh. Uh, Robert B. Parker. Yeah. No, my husband's a huge fan of those. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah, he's got like paperback originals downstairs. So. That's awesome. I Yeah, he's he's my all-time favorite author to this point. Which is odd because he's like completely different than anything I write. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways but yeah michael pritchard did like his first let's see i want to say about 10 10 novels and then they started playing around with other voices and eh, it's never as good but uh but i i love piper down she is does a phenomenal job i would steal her if i could <laughs> you know she's actually not generally doing narration work any longer she went back to school, got a master's in psychology, and is doing therapy with kids through art. Yep. That I and, didn't um, know. I am just so, so incredibly grateful that she still wants to do my books. Um, I don't know what I would do if she ever fired me. Oh, I would cry. I would cry. I, yeah, right. I know all of my listeners would cry. Um, I, and I don't so blame hard. them. Yeah. It's so hard to change voices. Like, really difficult when you're a listener do you listen to a lot of audiobooks i do not i have never been a, a um a big audiobook listener and so that's yeah that's always seemed very strange to me whenever people use different narrators for different of their books sometimes even within the same series I don't know. with different yeah i i have a problem with it personally yeah. <laughs> but that's just me other people they might like it i don't know and hopefully i'm not as not upsetting everybody but i think you should stick with one if you can obviously right. there are times you can't sure so uh what's your all-time favorite scene that you've written <laughs> oh my goodness i know um, you got well, <laughs> well and i was actually just posted about this on facebook i oh. like last week oh um, i didn't read it uh, no it's okay well I, because i was mind, i got in the car and so it, you probably know that whenever you're driving it is a great time for your brain to come up with ideas and mm -hmm. dialogue and plot twists and all that kind of stuff and so I was going for a two-hour drive, and I was prepping myself to work out some plot stuff for the new book for Medusa Falling. Mm -hmm. And instead, I got in the car, and my brain immediately started going through the last scene in the most recent book, because it's a huge scene with the huge reveal, and it's very emotional mm -hmm. and everything. And I ran, my brain just, you know, line by line, word by word, ran through it on loop, because I love it, and because it's very emotional. And so I posted about that and about some of the other of the scenes that have stuck with me mm -hmm. through 19 books. Um, a lot of books, by the way. 
Yes. That's like Stephen King material. I know, right? Every single book seems like it takes forever when I'm in the middle of it. Mm. It seems like it's going so slowly. But now then I turn around and look over my shoulder and there are 19 of them. And I'm like, how did that happen? So, um, <laughs> yes. So, you know, in Starshine, um, there's a scene where the two main characters who are falling in love um, and then they're attacked on Seneca uh, on his home planet and and she's shot and they escape and there's a big misunderstanding um and he thinks she's freaked out because he went all badass killer and, and rescued them but killed a bunch of people and all that kind of stuff and um but she had been shot and didn't tell him and so she was acting strangely anyway they get in this huge fight and they just barely break through the misunderstanding to come to reconciliation and realize that each of them had the wrong idea. Um, you know, it's one of those moments where a single misplaced word, a single thing different, and it all falls apart. Mm -hmm. But they they made that turn and they made it through that. Um, and that was the first really big emotional scene that I, I had written in this series. Um, and so that one has always stuck with me. Um, you know, there's a scene in Vertigo where two of the major characters, Richard Navick and Will Sutton, they're married. And um, it turns out that Will had been lying to Richard ever since they'd known each other about who he was in his past. And that all comes to light. And they have Spoiler a reconciliation scene. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't, okay, that's, okay you're, that's true. I apologize. It, it, I'm just, just starting out that as a spoiler. Um, but they have a very emotional reunion. And I've always just absolutely loved that scene. Um that, yeah, and that's the problem. Most of my favorite scenes I can't really talk about because they are by definition incredibly spoilery. Um, the last chapter of book eight, Rubicon, brings back a character into the most important characters' lives. And it that scene was eight books in the making. I mean, I I, I knew what was going to happen if I was able to get to eight books um from the beginning and i had been gradually painstakingly laying the groundwork through each book building up toward it so huge payoff a terrifying payoff um but huge and you know you write a scene like that you know eight, eight books in the making and, and that never goes away for you that's awesome I, the fact that you plan that far in advance i don't know how you do that I uh, I would uh, I would fall apart before I th that's the problem is my plots tend to evolve a little I mean you know the main plot never changes because you know what what's going to happen but the characters change the plot for me so much mm -hmm. in the little in the little ways do you do you have that same thing or does yours stay very close <laughs> to what you plan? Um, I was pretty strict with them in the early days you know, this is the plot and you will follow this. Um, as I got more confident in my writing, I started letting them out to play a little more. Mm -hmm. And so now I am, you know, I know how it's going to end. I know how the book is going to end. If the book is relevant to a larger multi-book thread, then I know how that's going to end. But within scenes, you know, I will let them take charge. Um, and, and even beyond that, I mean, yes, I've had to change things because I start writing and characters go off in a direction that I never anticipated. Um, so that has certainly changed some things. Um, I, I explain my favorite story about that is Miriam, 
So the main character, Alex, her mother, Miriam, is an admiral in the military, and they mm-hmm. are fairly estranged whenever Starshine opens. They Right. You put them in the same room and it's like your cat's fighting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get that feeling through like the first couple chapters pretty quick. <laughs> yes. Um, Miriam was intended entirely to be a foil for Alex, to bring out some of Alex's personality and her personal history and that type of thing. But Miriam had other ideas and she immediately stole every scene that I wrote her in. Um to the point that by the third book, by Transcendent, she was one of the most important characters. And readers loved her. Absolutely. And um, she and and she has continued to be, you know, one of the most important characters. Her and Alex's relationship evolves a lot over the nine books of the Aurora novels. Um, and she grows as a person as well. Um, and she just took charge in the series in a way that I never intended for her. That's the best, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it is. It's. It, I, I worry that non-writers don't know what you and I are talking about. When, whenever we we act as if our characters are alive and and have they they have agency. <laughs> yes, they do. They really have. But, We're, but this talking, is primarily yes. a role playing uh, beginnings to this to this show, and so most most everybody understands how characters, you know, an NPC in that in that case or side characters it's always side characters never main characters that just take the plot and, and run with it in a way that you're just like what how did you become so <laughs> Wait, important what? where are you going <laughs> absolutely it, it yes. is the truth yeah i i uh i noticed through my own that people ask about characters that i had no intention of having any real depth to them mm-hmm. and yet those are the characters that everybody's like well are you going to write about that character you gonna do that do you get a lot of that um i do uh, well I, I get it from readers but i also get it from our myself i mean i can't tell you the number yeah. of characters that i intended to be filler for a scene or two you know i need a person that fills this role right and then three books later there they are carrying their own subplot <laughs> you know? yes um yes. I, see but that's that's the best right because when i i've always i've always hated just filler characters and yet they're so important if you don't have them i mean even if you don't name them they have to be there that you can't just have five characters in a whole thing i mean we're not talking about castaway right you, you need the secretary you need the person that delivers right. the order you need the 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 uh, waiter at the restaurant that type of thing yeah right and then you start writing and then you know main character will say something to them and it's like no they're not going to just say that this they're going to say what they think and feel <laughs> and then it turns into a real character and you're like well crap now this character has to have a life every person is the hero in their own story even the waiter (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome yes that is totally the way it goes so let's talk a little bit about the business here so you've been writing for 19 books and that said you said you started starshine what year um in 2013 it's 10th year anniversary will be next year so so 10 years you've been writing yeah. just about yeah. i mean with your own right own, right plus uh, about three years of the fan fiction before that yeah right um so when you first started writing that first book how did you get it to launch 
And because I know that that's like still one of your biggest sellers is that first book. How did how did that one um, how did that one launch everything going forward? <laughs> totally unexpectedly. Um, so <laughs> I did. I leveraged my fan fiction readers. Mm -hmm. I um, I told them what I was doing. I went ahead and created my website and I created the social media, at least Twitter and Facebook. Um, and I invited them to come along and I told them that if they subscribed to my newsletter, then, then they would get Starshine for free whenever it came out. And I did blog posts, updating them on the progress of the book and talking about writing and all of that type of stuff all along as I was doing Starshine. Um, but I didn't do much of anything else. This was still pretty early days of indie publishing. And it was not, there was not the structure all around it that there is now. There was no, not 4,000 websites. 2012. Time yeah. Of, of yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Kindle had been out for five years and there were already some huge indie success stories, Hugh Howie being the biggest example there. Um, mm. But there were also others. Um, but it had not yet turned into an industry. Um, there, you know, there was no book talk, you know, and, and that right. type of thing. Um, so I actually, and I, and we didn't have the money to throw a lot of funds into it or anything like that. Um, I did my own cover, um, and I wasn't as good at Photoshop then as I am now and that type of thing. It was a wing and a prayer type thing. So I released the book, um, an ebook and paperback. And I gave it away to everyone who had ever read me, which might have been a statement against interest. You know, everybody that had been with me the whole time, I gave it away to them. Um, that did give me a couple of reviews on Amazon uh -huh. and that type of thing. Um, and the first 10 days, I sold some copies. I averaged between four and 10 copies a day, which for a brand new author with no following and no pl marketing plan or anything that's like that, good. I realized that's very good that's not going to pay the bills good no that's no, like it's something to be proud good, of yeah, yeah to be proud of in that sense but it's not going to pay the bills so i was like okay this is going and so then about 10 12 days after i launched um i woke up morning it was actually my birthday if you can believe it and at that point, I was still obsessively checking the KDP dashboard, which is Amazon's dashboard, where you can see where you sold books on Amazon. And I had sold 20 books overnight. And I was like, wow, that's more than I've sold, you know, twice as many as I've sold on any given day. Wow, this is pretty cool. So I get up and I take a shower and I have breakfast and I turn on my computer. And when I go to KDP on my computer, I had sold 100 copies. And I had no idea what was happening. By the end of the day, I had sold like 500 copies. Wow. And so that vaulted it to the top of the new release charts, which can be a very powerful thing on Amazon. Especially, um, especially in 2013. Especially in 2013. Less so now when there's a glut of everything. But then, you know, sci-fi readers are voracious readers. They just devour everything that comes out. And they're always looking for something new. So they go to the new release charts. Hey, there's this new book I've never seen before. Let me buy it. Um and Starshine really took off after that. To this day, I do not know why those first 20 copies overnight sold. I assume that someone posted about the book on a forum back because back then forums were forum. actually still a thing. Also, um, well, some still Reddit. 
there's still Reddit, yes. And maybe it was on Reddit. Maybe it was on a website or a blog comment or something. Somebody posted, hey, I read this new sci-fi book, new author. It's really cool. Y'all should check it out. 20 or so people went to buy it. And that was enough to get it on the charts for people to see. And then more people bought it. And then the rest is history. So, I mean, the short answer to your question is, I don't know. And I will never know. And how crazy is that? <laughs> That's awesome. I, I I can totally see it. That book is very well done. I think you did a great job. And probably having the fact that you'd written so many words already, you'd gotten kind of a, a rhythm down to how you wrote and your, your own uh, character development abilities, obviously. So it's a great book. Anybody who's not read it, I definitely recommend it. Um, I haven't read any of the others yet other than the Noir series, which I will always love now. There is definitely one of my top. I, I recommend it to everybody. I, I constantly. Well, thank you. And I will food. say, I know it's a long ask, um, but <clears throat> if, if you can get through the Aurora books. Oh, I and will. So then be able to read Riven Worlds. Um, Nika is such a huge character in that series and all of the Asterians. It truly is a complete melding of the two worlds. Um, and there would be no Riven Worlds without Asteria Noir, but it, I can't under as you know overemphasize how important the Asteria Noir storyline is to what comes after. Um, you you will definitely be I haven't read it. after yet because I, I knew I had to start at the beginning to be able to get. And you do want to, because yes, everything, the history of the Aurora books also matter tremendously in the Riven Worlds novels. Um, but they are in many respects, Nika's story, even more than Alex's story. Um, so I, I can't wait for you to get to that. I can't wait either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I can't wait to read again. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, how do you, I, how do you um, balance reading and writing? I don't right? know. I, and honestly, the first couple of years after I started writing professionally, my reading suffered. Um, not entirely my reading because I did beta reads for the writer friends that I made. Right. And they read my books and I read their books. And it's a pretty full quo and that's fine. Um, I enjoy their books very much and everything. But other than beta reading, no, I, I normal reading for pleasure fell by the wayside. And probably three years ago, I really recognize that and made a concerted effort to change it um because writers should be readers that's why we're writers in the first place because we yeah. were readers first we all were yep. and you don't want to lose that you don't want to lose touch with different styles of writing and different stories and that type of thing um so that you get in your own little bubble um so in the last two to three years i've made a concerted effort to um to read for pleasure i do just read sci-fi now I mean, back before I read fantasy, I read political thriller and espionage and mystery and all of that. And there's not time I for that see now. It. I can see it. Um, but I do try and read different kinds of sci-fi. I actually try and alternate reading classics with reading modern current published books and that type so of thing. So how would so. you classify your books? Obviously, obviously they're sci-fi, but where would you, where do you put them? in the sci-fi um, I, I say space opera um with a secondary on adventure um but also yeah i mean of course they have cyberpunk and thriller mm -hmm. and military sci-fi singular big singularity themes in, in the aurora series as well um 
you know, subgenres are meant to be broken. Yes, they should be broken, in my opinion. Yes. <laughs> Same thing with romance. I think that I think that every good book should have romance in it. There should not just be romance, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. I, well, no, I agree so much. I mean, as they say, love makes the world go round. Right. Um, and so, yes, romance, it, it should be a part of any real character driven story because it's so big a part of our own lives, of human lives. Right. Yeah. So. In so many different ways. It's not just, like you said, love is so important in reality and in the books. Yes. It's, it's everything. It's your motivation. It's everything to some degree, even self-love, you know, whether or not you care about yourself and what, not, not the bad self or not the uh, weird, we're not getting down that road, but self-love isn't actually care about yourself. Type love. Well, I think, and I think the best heroes do because they're, they're confident and determined and and that type of thing so um but yeah you want to call them space opera adventure you know military sci-fi not really i mean that's not the main theme of my books but mostly they're character driven um character driven that i think in a, a way that a lot of sci-fi isn't i mean sci-fi is often about cool aliens or space battles or tech or that type of thing and yes. even the sci-fi greats you know, Isaac Asimov, which is the reason why I'm here at all, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, mm. all of that characters, three-dimensional, compelling characters that you fell in love with were not their strong suit. Right. I mean, even if you look at like Philip K. Dick or somebody like that, <clears throat> where it's very, um, very emotionally driven stories, and yet they're very technical. You know, there's a lot of tech yeah. in it that that kind of thing i think i think character based is really a good definition for your books because what i've read they're all very character driven yes which is my favorite way of doing over plot i mean plot's important but characters make the plot have weight yeah they make you care about the plot yeah so. otherwise you wouldn't care at all right although i guess there are books that are very plot driven that have been good anyways i digress <laughs> so how how uh you, how many more novels do you have planned out because i know you've got at least another 10 <laughs> <laughs> well you know i intend to write until my brain won't cooperate anymore um which implies a whole bunch of books and that actually does terrify me a little bit um you know at the thought of it um could, could i come up with plots for 40 more books that type of thing but in this arc um so like i said right now i'm writing a standalone story medusa falling um it's going to be a trilogy of standalone stories called cosmic shores um and each one will feature a different main character but they will each be standalone adventures that um new people can come into new readers who have not read the first 19 books my intent is that they'll be able to pick these up and enjoy them and if they enjoy them enough then I will send them back to Starshine as well. Um, back to your back catalog. <laughs> yes, yes, that is yes. the plan. Um, then I am toying with a series of prequel stories. Um, well, as you know, as you've read Asterian Noir, there's a tremendous history to the Amaranth universe. I mean, when we right. meet the characters in Asterian Noir, 
some of them have been alive for 700,000 years. Um, the, you know, so there's a wealth of stuff. And once you get into Riven World, you discover that there is even a much greater wealth of history there for the telling. And some of it matters a great deal for what's going to come next. So okay. I'm going to do some prequel stories, but that is still very much in flux. They may be short story collections or novellas or that type of thing. Um, and I'm still working on that in my head. But then I will have another epic trilogy that brings all of the cast back together for a climactic story that the 19 books up until now have been leading up to. The sort of meta, meta story arc that really did begin in Starshine, though you can't tell it when you read Starshine, um, will come to a conclusion in, in that story so those will be three big hundred forty thousand word books with, so with, you're really going to try to wrap it up somehow i am going to try i am going to wrap up the story that i began with yes very cool but as well you may not know yet but i'm pretty loath to kill characters i i have killed a few over the course of 19 books i brought several of them back oh, with, <laughs> with the whole technology that you have it's hard to kill it is actually the real death is uh, yes yeah um, i've actually had to work pretty hard to do that um and some of them find a way to come back again anyway because you're right um and that's a whole other conversation about technology creep um and how that can challenge stakes. If everybody can live forever, then what are the stakes? You know? Um, right. And so I have found some solutions to that, but it has been a challenge. Um, but I am loath to kill characters. And if I do, it is, you know, for a very good reason or a very honorable, deserved, earned death and that type of thing. All of that is to say that I will wrap up that story thread, but that doesn't mean that that's the end of the universe or these characters' lives. It means that the possibilities are endless going forward it's a new day the future is in front of us what do we do with it what now your question is what do i do with it um yes. that is the most the, important question <laughs> for the first time i don't entirely know right now um i can write more stories in this universe with this characters they love to get in trouble i'm certain that they will find new adventures to have um it is literally the universe. And so I can go off and find new characters in a new society that's a couple of million light years away, halfway across the universe. Um, in a very vast timeline. Exactly. Um, that So it's technically in the Amaranth universe, but has no connection to everything that's come before. Um, and that's probably more likely, at least for a while. Um, I can't possibly say that I will then leave Alex and Nika alone forever because that seems really unlikely. Um, it's but hard to the important thing is, I'll, I'll, yeah. but yes, so that's right now three standalone stories, some prequel stories, a big epic trilogy, and then we'll just have to see. So, now what about fanfic? Has anybody written any fanfic of your stuff that you know of? Not that I know of. Um, and that's that's actually it's kind of sad, but that's a trip tricky subject for authors if someone were to tell me hey i wrote this fanfic of yours and i've attached it check it out i can't there are a morass of legal issues that you get involved in um if i read somebody's story and then later on i write a story in my world 
and it coincidentally has some elements that might have been in their story, then they can mm -hmm. sue me. They can, uh, you know, or better yet than suing me, they can make a big stink on Twitter, um, which is worse these days. Yes. Um, they can sue you in the public. <laughs> right, sue me in public and try to cancel me, right? Um, right. And when, in a day when the accusation is all that is required. Um, not that I think any of my readers would ever do that, but not. you do have to protect yourself. And so the best course of action, you know, the, the, the best authors in this respect say or look we love fan fiction go out and write fan fiction write your heart it makes me so happy that you love my characters or my setting so much that you want to expand it and write about it and please do that i would love that but i can't read it right a and that has to be a hard line that you draw which makes me you a little sad you but. can't read it <laughs> <laughs> I really yeah. in no way whatsoever did I ever open that attachment in the email you got it that's right <laughs> yeah. but if they want to post it on AO3 you know or DeviantArt or wherever then that's fine other people can I'm not telling them that other people can't read it that they can't put right. it out there in the world it's still it's just still that flattering. I can't. Have, yes have, oh, huge. Have a wonderful actually flattering I I have had a couple of people do art of some of the characters in my books and that is incredibly flattering as well absolutely that's awesome that is so awesome well I really appreciate you coming on the show and be able to tell us so many wonderful things about your own history and of course about the the world that you've created um I know I enjoy your writing and I encourage everybody to pick up uh, if not starshine to start at the beginning unlike I did so anyway thank you so much I am uh, I'm so glad that you found the book and that we were able to meet and um and now do yes. this today and and I actually homaged you in my book I know I would well, again I mean, like it? fan fiction oh, so and glad. art that is the biggest compliment in the world and again congratulations on publishing your own book oh. and I wish you all of the success going forward Thank you so much for coming on and we really appreciate it. And um, you said you have this uh, new book coming out. When are you thinking? I, well, it's a little early to say for certain, um, hopefully summer, possibly late summer. Like I said, since it's a new world oh, this year. Wow. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like I said, you know, five to eight months is my usual. This one will probably be closer to the eight months because it was a new setting with new aliens and new society. So there was a lot of world building that I had to do fresh as opposed to writing in my established universe um so there was a, a bit more work on the front end there so you know july if i'm feeling optimistic late august is probably more realistic but it is available for pre-order right now and i'll put all the links to all the pre-ordering and obviously okay. to your current your current back catalog too um and we really appreciate it thank you so much thank you very much i've had a great time this has been a Geezers of the Game production. If you'd like to support us, please find us on Patreon or buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. Mick isn't who he thinks he is. Neither are the closest people around him. But is he ready to be someone else? In the era of extreme climate change, Mick is a menial laborer working for the Federal Tempest Corporation, who just happens to be calling the shots in Dome City. With only 15 million of the Earth's dwindling population allowed inside the dome, he is lucky, or is he? When Mick receives an unexpected communication cast, his life is changed for good. Not only is he put on a path to a history he doesn't want, but he is also on the run with Federal Tempest troops on his tail, determined to capture him 
whether alive or dead. Turning to help from his best friend, Leland and girlfriend, Jolene he quickly finds that they aren't who they claim to be either, and one leaves him high and dry, while the other is in just as much danger as him. What Mick doesn't know is that he's been off the radar for a year, and the mystery man from the communication has opened not just his past life, but his past love giving him the one person who he can possibly trust. Who exactly is Mick, and why are the Federal Tempest troops going to such great lengths to bury the truth? You will love this fast-paced cyberpunk dystopian romance about a man seeking the truth, love, and perhaps revenge. Get it now.